I, Ketanji Brown Jackson. I, Ketanji Brown Jackson. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will administer justice. That I will administer justice. Without respect to persons. Without respect to persons. And do equal right. And do equal right. To the poor and to the rich. To the poor and to the rich. A little afternoon today, Ketanji Brown Jackson was sworn in as the first Black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. A very short uh, ceremony, but one that uh, pretends a, a huge change for the Supreme Court, which now is no longer uh, a court with a majority of white men. It, for the first time, has four women serving simultaneously, which is as close to parity as you can get on a nine-member uh, court. The moment was historic, but Jackson is joining the bench just as the court has wrapped up an especially controversial term. You know, it was uh, cantankerous and um, contentious, and it was also historic. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 30th. Today, we're talking to Supreme Court reporter Robert Barnes about the term that just finished, how the court has moved sharply to the right, and what we can learn from its big decisions, besides overturning Roe v. Wade. Religion interests basically ran the table at the Supreme Court, including a decision that said a state that offers tuition help for parents to send their kids to private schools, have to extend it to private religious schools. That's something that the court has never held before and something that those who are opposed to sort of the inter-entanglement between government and religion is quite concerned about. It made it harder for states and localities to uh, restrict the ability to get a permit to carry a weapon outside the home. That's something that the court had never ruled on before. Today, it, uh, it limited the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to combat climate change by controlling uh, carbon output and greenhouse gases at existing power plants. Any one of these would have been a big decision on its own. Uh, The fact that there were so many of them this term is what I think has really put the Supreme Court uh, in the public eye in a way that it hasn't been for years. I'd like to start with the one that we got today, um, West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. Can you remind us what that case was about? That case was about uh, exactly what does the Clean Air Act give the EPA the authority to do. Um, The EPA has interpreted it as fairly broad authority to uh, regulate the carbon output of existing power plants. And the EPA sees it as part of a broad way to uh, fight climate change uh, and greenhouse gases. The EPA's power is a bounded one. It takes an existing pollution source as a given and asks what emissions rate is achievable for that source. And what the court ruled today is that it is much more narrow than that, that the Clean Air Act um, doesn't give EPA these broad uh, powers without specific uh, 
approval, without ex- specific authority from Congress. The Clean Air Act was written decades ago before climate change became the issue that we all sort of see it to be now. The Congress, you won't be surprised to hear, has not been able to agree on how to update that law if it should be updated. And so uh, Republican-led states such as West Virginia and other uh, went to courts and said the EPA doesn't have the authority. Congress hasn't given it to them. Yet EPA can now regulate in ways that cost billions of dollars, affect thousands of businesses, and are designed to address an issue with worldwide effect. This is major policymaking power under any definition. And though respondents argue EPA can resolve these questions unless clearly forbidden, this court's precedents are clear that's backward. Unless Congress clearly authorizes it, Section 111 does not stretch so far. And Congress hasn't done so here. The implications are, though, make make it much tougher for President Biden to implement some of the uh, climate change plans that he has wanted to do. Um, Now, remember, this is the court interpreting uh, a piece of federal legislation. So Congress could change that legislation. The court is saying Congress hasn't done this. It could do it if it wants to, but uh, as you know, it's very tough to get those kind of changes through this Congress, this very divided Congress, and so it's going to be much harder for the Biden administration. It feels like the court is making these decisions very quickly. Why is the court in such a hurry to make these big changes, and doesn't the court usually like to avoid shaking things up so much so quickly? I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. One, uh, this new uh, conservative sort of supermajority of six. Uh, most of the time, Chief Judge Justice Roberts is one of those six people. But what you've got are three uh, new conservatives on the court, all nominated by President Trump, who seem to be in a bit of a hurry and not worried about uh, overturning precedent. And you have two members, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, who have been there for a long time, and they're getting impatient. They're getting older. They uh, have wanted some of these changes on the court's abortion jurisprudence, on the Second Amendment. They've wanted those to happen for quite some time. And so, you know, those two things fit together to make the court take up a very— ambitious and controversial docket this term. Were there any cases where we didn't see such a stark split along ideological lines? Well, the court does decide things unanimously. One of those religions cases wasn't unanimous. It was eight to one. But that was a case in which a death row uh, inmate in Texas said that he should have the right to have a spiritual advisor with him at the time of his execution, not only with him, but to pray aloud with him and to lay hands on him, which is something that Texas wouldn't allow. The court said that that should be allowed on an eight-to-one vote. But I don't think that's going to be the theme of this term. I think the theme of this term is how ideologically split um, the court is. I mean, often the court is seen in the public as sort of balanced when some decisions go conservatives' way and 
some go uh, liberals' ways. We didn't really have that this term. Uh, arguably, the only case that you really would see that in is this Biden administration case today on Remain in Mexico, in which liberals prevailed because they were able to draw a couple of conservatives to their side um, rather than they all just agree. Right. And so I think that we're going to see the conservatives continue to be uh, in control and to take issues that they feel strongly about. The court has already accepted a case for next term about the use of affirmative action in college admissions. This is something that the Supreme Court has ruled on Uh, several times, uh, not even that long ago, and said that race can be used as one factor, not as the deciding factor in college admissions. And conservatives are not happy about that. They continue to bring challenges. And I would be very surprised to see that upheld next term. Mm -hmm. Is there another big issue that you're keeping an eye on that the court is set to take up in this coming term? Uh, Well, the court also today said that it would take up a case about uh, what's called the independent legislature doctrine, which means that the Constitution's language about the legislature setting the rules and manner of federal elections, uh, that it should be read literally, that only the legislature can make those rules and that there is no room for the state Supreme Court, to review those decisions. The court has never uh, ruled on this, but it would be a huge change in the way federal elections are done. It would mean, for instance, that state courts didn't have any um, role in looking at partisan gerrymandering. Hmm. And this would very much help Republicans if um, it was seen that the legislature had the final word because simply because right now Republicans control so many more of the state legislatures than Democrats do. This case won't really affect um, the upcoming elections in the fall. It will be decided later, but it will have a big impact on the next presidential election. And so, as you might uh, guess, Democrats don't feel terribly good about their chances at the Supreme Court these days on uh, many issues. Um, But we don't know. After the break, what these decisions tell us about where the court is heading and what that means for its reputation. We'll be right back. I'm just sort of stepping back and looking at the list of issues the court has already taken up or plans to take up, and it feels like a lot of them, not all, are just major themes for conservatives, and conservatives have really made out well on their biggest issues. And one question that leads me to is what is left for them in terms of the issues they wish the court to take up? 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. I mean, but these decisions uh, and Supreme Court decisions often are not the final word about something. Hmm. Uh, they are often uh, a limited or narrow um, view. And even in cases that aren't narrow, they still leave questions to come. For instance, in the uh, abortion case, uh, it said that it's sort of turning the issue back over to uh, the states. But does that mean that a state could completely uh, eliminate abortion without any exception for the woman's health or if the woman's life is in danger? That's something that's not uh, – contemplated or clear by this uh, recent opinion. So there are going to be a lot of cases like that, um, a lot of issues like it, would a state be able to uh, forbid someone to cross state lines mm. uh, to get an abortion? That's unclear, although Justice Kavanaugh, uh, in a concurring opinion, that said even though he was in the majority to overturn Roe, uh, he didn't think a state would be able to do that, to prohibit that. Um, So there are a lot of issues on guns, on religion, on abortion uh, that are still out there and will still come before the court as it sort of fine-tunes what it means. You know, at the beginning of this conversation, we were talking about Justice Jackson, who joined the court today. She's a liberal justice at this time of deep division and controversy for the court. And our colleague Roxanne Roberts actually spoke to Jackson last month. Let's hear a bit of that. I can only do what I do. I've been a judge for a a while. So this is is not the first judicial appointment that I've had. Um, And I think I'm going to approach it in the same way I have approached all of my other judicial appointments, understanding what my role is, um, understanding the way our system was designed and is supposed to work. Um, I'm very optimistic. I'm an optimistic person by nature. And um, as you say, I love this country and I love the institution of the courts. I wonder, Bob, I know you're not in their heads, but I'm wondering what you know from your expertise and your many years of reporting, what this moment may feel like for the liberal justices on the court. Well, I think there are probably a couple of things to think of. One, uh, these justices have lifetime appointments. And so uh, just as um, Justice Thomas was once the odd man out uh, writing uh, solo dissents and and sort of criticizing his colleagues for not taking up issues. You know, he's now part of a majority that's doing exactly that. So, you know, in a in one way, the supreme being on the Supreme Court, you look at the long haul. Um, but the other is, I think that they look for ways um, to to get their point across in small ways. Uh, to it maybe making opinions more narrow than they might be uh, otherwise, you know, like today finding uh, agreement with two of the conservatives in a way that make uh, a majority. But I doubt you would find any of the three uh, 
liberal justices, Sotomayor, Kagan, and now uh, Jackson, happy about the situation they're in right now. I don't think anyone uh, on the court would be pleased to just be writing fiery dissents. Um, All members of the court are very good at writing fiery dissents. Um, (laughs) They have all had a lot of practice. (laughs) They've had practice, but they don't particularly – they would all tell you that they would rather be on the winning side uh, than writing one of those sort of scathing dissents that get a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. Bob, looking at this term that has just concluded, how do you think it's changed how we all think about the Supreme Court as an institution? Well, uh, if you look at public polling, you would see a a public very unhappy with the Supreme Court right now. Um, Just a few years ago, it had its highest rating uh, ever, or certainly in the recent past. Just a couple of weeks ago, Gallup said it was at its lowest point in public approval. And so I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think in general, the public looks at the court and they like it if they agree with the decisions (laughs) that the court makes and they don't if they don't. And they don't look terribly closely at the reasoning that the court uses or, you know, whether they really agree, you know, that the Clean Air Act doesn't give the EPA uh, this right or this authority. Um, And so I think that that is out there. I think that the politicalization of the court, I think that these – the sort of machinations about the recent confirmations to the court have really soured part of the public, especially Democrats and the left who feel that it was unfair – not to have given President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, a hearing when uh, President Obama still had months, almost a year to go in his last term. I think that there is a large group that thinks it was unfair to push through a vote on uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett uh, after Justice Ginsburg's death just a few weeks before the uh, 2020 election at a time when people were already voting and it seemed clear that uh, President Trump was not going to win re-election. I think those things have made an impact uh, on the public um, and uh, has affected um, their view of the court. And yes, this question of whether the court is being perceived as very political I I know that Chief Justice John Roberts has been very concerned with that idea. And given the makeup of the court and these decisions in particular this term, have those fears about the court not just losing faith or bad approval ratings, but it being perceived as a political institution, have they come to be a reality for many? I think that they have taken root in the public's mind. I mean, it it seems, uh, you know, Uh, that this is just logical that the Republican nominees are conservative and the Democratic nominees are liberal, but that's not the way it always was on the court. Uh, There were, in fact, often a couple of Republican nominees who became quite liberal in their time on the court. There have been Democratic nominees who were conservative. But right now what we have is a six-member supermajority of conservatives all of whom were nominated by Republican presidents. And we have three liberal justice, justices, all of them 
nominated by Democratic presidents. When you look at the breakdown of the votes, what you see are Republican-nominated justices going one way and the same for Democrats, and that goes not just at the Supreme Court but through the federal judiciary. And so, you know, that's in a way always the way it's been. The nomination of judges has always been uh, done by political party and by the president in charge and uh, the Senate. But it is a little different. The filibuster is gone. It means that you don't have to get as many votes to, um, to get your judges confirmed. And the Trump uh, administration in coordination with the Republican-led Senate really took advantage of that and stocked the judiciary with Republican conservative judges. President Biden has taken uh, a page from that, and he has been very successful in getting uh, Democratic-nominated uh, judges uh, into position uh, at, a, at a rate even faster than uh, Trump in some ways. And so, you know, what you see are a lot of judges uh, confirmed on party line votes. And I think that that somehow, you know, is in the public image and the public mind as well. I think the big question is... um, How many more cases are they going to be taking that raise these controversial issues? Um, Is this going to be a period in which the court wants to slow down a little bit? Uh, I haven't, I tell you, I haven't really seen evidence of that uh, yet. Um, But perhaps that will happen. Um, You know, I think that the question before this term was, uh, you know, how fast would it go? And the answer was fast. Uh, And I think the question for next term is going to be the same. Robert Barnes covers the Supreme Court for The Post. Sabby Robinson produced this story with help from Sharla Freeland. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.